0: You're listening to EHA Unplugged, Episode 7, Chronic Myeloid Leukemia, CML, a Chronic Illness. Welcome back to the seventh episode of EHA Unplugged. This is the podcast where you can listen to passionate experts in hematology talking freely about highlights in their field of expertise. Today's podcast speaker is transplant expert, Professor Sean McCann. Well, Sean, the mic is yours.
1: Hello, my name is Sean McCann. I was Professor of Hematology and Academic Medicine at Trinity College Dublin and St. James's Hospital Dublin, both of which are in Ireland. I'm making this podcast on behalf of the European Hematology Association. I'm on a talk a little bit about a disease called chronic myeloid leukemia, which I'll refer to as CML, and uh, I will follow that with a real live case in which I was involved uh, some time ago. Since my days as a trainee in hematology in the 1970s, which is actually not that long ago, although it may seem like ancient history to some of you, CML has gone from a fatal illness, which was a very depressing diagnosis to make, uh, with a survival of about three years, to nowadays a chronic illness with a survival which is similar to an age match normal population. So that's been really a radical change over a relatively short period of time. So I'm going to just give you a little bit of history uh, not too much, yeah, just a little bit, so that you know how we got from there to here. Um, first of all, a man in Germany in the early part of the 20th century called Theodore Bovary suggested that cancer was an acquired genetic disease. And we know now that, of course, he was absolutely right. And chronic myeloid leukemia, or CML, was the first malignant disease to exhibit a so-called non-random chromosomal abnormality. Now, this abnormality was first published by Noel and Hungerford in 1960. And they did their research in Philadelphia, which is why the cytogenetic abnormality is called the Philadelphia chromosome. Nothing more subtle than that. Um, when they examined the types of patients with clinically what appeared to be CML, they found a consistently abnormal, what they called a Y chromosome. And they christened this the Philadelphia 1 chromosome, thinking that there'd be more than one. And in fact, there haven't been. Although they weren't correct in their interpretation, they were correct in their observation. So, let's hope for us all yet that we can make an observation which is correct. And even though the interpretation may not be, it may, may become a major contribution to clinical medicine and the treatment of fatal illnesses. Now, if we move along to 1972, Dr. Janet Rowley, working in Chicago, was using a relatively new technique in looking at karyotypes called banding. And she was able to demonstrate that the Philadelphia chromosome was in fact the result of a reciprocal translocation between the long arm, or part of the long arm of chromosome nine and chromosome 22. This turned out to be a really important observation as it opened the way to our current understanding and treatment of this fatal illness or what was a fatal illness. Uh, Things moved along and in 1985, uh, George Daly and David Baltimore in America were able to show that the so-called BCR-ABL transcripts had enhanced tyrosine kinase activity. And they were also able to demonstrate that the fusion gene, the so-called BCR-ABLE gene, and its transcripts could induce a CML-like disease in laboratory animals, mice in that case. So by 1990, it was widely accepted, at least in the hematology community, that the BCR-ABLE fusion gene had a central role in chronic myeloid leukemia or CML. Just a matter of nomenclature, The BCR, of course, as you know, stands for the breakpoint cluster region on chromosome 22, and the ABL is on the long arm of chromosome 9. So we now had established that this fusion gene was playing a central role in the phenotype or the cause of CML. Now, during the time that all of these experiments were taking place, uh, there were various different Treatment's been offered to patients with CML. In the earlier days, treatment was with splenic irradiation. This was followed by a drug called busulfan, which, as you know, is a stem cell toxin. Hydroxycarbamide, or hydroxyurea, as it was known in the 80s and 90s. Leucoferases, and an interesting drug called interferon-alpha. Now, although all of these treatments, with the exception of interferon, did reduce the white cell count and relieve symptoms and reduce spleen size, none of them really altered the underlying pathobiology of CML. Interferon alpha is slightly different in that in a minority of patients, the so-called Philadelphia chromosome disappeared. And even more surprisingly, in a minority of that minority, the Philadelphia chromosome stayed away for some time after the treatment had been discontinued. So why wasn't everybody using interferon alpha and why wasn't every patient receiving interferon alpha? Well, I suppose the main reason was that the drug was quite toxic and patients felt quite unwell. The introduction of pegylated or now acting interferon-alpha was slightly more acceptable, but um, the drug was, as we will see, surpassed by tyrosine kinase inhibitors. However, interferon-alpha looks like it's making a comeback in that some investigators are are looking at the combination of interferon-alpha with tyrosine kinase, which may prove to be a very useful combination In the treatment of CML. Now things changed again in the early 1990s in that allogeneic sibling bone marrow transplantation became quite popular all over the world. This followed on the observation in Seattle that twins, one of whom had CML, could be cured by an allogeneic allogeneic HCT. And by the mid-1990s, it turned out, according to the ebmt survey that cml was the most common indication for allogeneic hct in europe and like other countries we followed suit and instituted an allogeneic stem cell or bone marrow transplant as it was then programmed in the early 1990s using a full myeloablative conditioning it's interesting if you look at the ebmt data that by, 19, by the end of the 1990s, the number of patients receiving allogeneic bone marrow transplants began to fall. And as you know, allo-HCT is rarely indicated for chronic leukemia or CML in this day and age. Now, the current um, story really starts in 1998 when Dr. Dr. Brian Drucker, who had been working with a number of colleagues on tyrosine kinase inhibitors, nothing at all to do with leukemia, by the way. He he presented his findings to the annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology, and he demonstrated the inhibition of CML colony formation in vitro and the suppression of the growth of BCR-able expressing cells in a an animal model, it was a mouse model, in fact, laboratory animal. It's also, I think, of some interest that when he presented this paper at the annual meeting of ASH, there were about 50 people in the audience, even though the number of people attending that meeting was in excess of 20,000. So those 50 people and Dr. Brian Drucker changed the world forever for CML patients. See, uh, uh, Brian Drucker and a number of his biochemistry colleagues after a lot of arguments did convince Novartis that it was worthwhile developing a tyrosine kinase inhibitor for the treatment of chronic myeloid leukemia even though the company was reluctant initially because CML is a relatively uncommon disease. However, the drug STI-571 which was probably better known to you as Zlivec, was introduced and it it really changed the outcome so that many patients with CML now have a life expectancy, which as I said earlier on, is very close to an age-matched normal population. So if you have CML, you're unfortunate enough to have CML, then the invention or the development of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors I'll come back to those later on, was obviously an extremely important uh, development in haematology. Now, how do we diagnose this disease nowadays? Well, first of all, a full physical uh, examination and history are called for. The physical examination usually reveals a large spleen and no other abnormality. The history is often not very contributory, Although occasionally the patients may complain of fatigue, night sweats, and weight loss. Nowadays, most patients are diagnosed with CML when they undergo a blood count for some unrelated condition or as a matter of routine examination. Following history and physical, a marrow aspirate is required and a blast cell count is carried out. The cytogenetics using banding analysis, and FISH, F-I-S-H, if it's a genetic analysis, does not identify the Philadelphia chromosome. Qualitative reverse polymerase chain reaction on peripheral blood to identify the type of BCR-1 transcript is extremely important, as this will avoid a false negative PCR result when patients are treated with TKIs uh, during their follow-up. There are a number of prognostic scores available Um, the most common one used probably is the SoCal score which depends on age, spleen size, platelet count and degree of myeloblasts. This is available on the internet and patients can be uh, entered into this and a result obtained immediately. Now, since the advent of TKIs, which I said have changed the landscape, for patients with CNL, uh, A number of questions have arisen which I think need to be considered and, if possible, answered. First a question in my mind is, do all patients respond equally to tyrosine kinase inhibitors? And the answer is no. Some patients develop mutations in the BCRA transcripts and this may lead to resistance to tyrosine kinase inhibitors, the most notorious one being the T315I mutation, which does not respond to Gleevec. How do you detect these transformations? Well, the first thing to say is that clinically, they should be suspected if patients have an initial response and they fall in transcripts and then a subsequent rise. These patients should be subject, or I should say their peripheral blood, should be subject to Sanger sequencing or next-generation sequencing if that is available, as these are currently the best way to detect mutations. So some people ask the question, should mutation analysis be carried out at diagnosis? And the answer, I think, is no. And this is agreed by most people. Who treat CML, and the the mutation analysis should only be carried out if indicated during treatment. Now, the European Leukaemia Network, or ELN, have produced a paper in 2020 in Leukaemia, and they they will. There's an extensive paper reviewing the current recommendations, which I would bring to your attention. They mention various different. Um, mutations and their responses or their expected responses to different types of TKIs. I'm not going to go into those now but would advise you to have that paper available to you in your clinic. Now, of course, the story has been very successful. However, there is no doubt that all of the TKIs have a degree of toxicity. Now, If you look at the literature on toxicity, you'll find one, you'll find grade one, two, three, and four toxicities. I'm afraid to say that many physicians pay little attention to grade one or two toxicities. But in fact, patients may pay attention to these, especially if they continue for many years. So chronic diarrhea or muscle pain every day for five years can be very debilitating and can certainly lead to patients discontinuing their medication. Um, We know that patients on treatment for hypertension, which has been very successful, that about half of them will stop their treatment after five years. In fact, I have my own personal experience in that my late mother, who was treated for hypertension, wanted to stop her drugs because her blood pressure was normal. Of course, I persuaded her to continue as a reason her blood pressure was normal, because she was taking her tablets. Likewise, patients with CML should continue their tyrosine kinase inhibitors indefinitely. So this raises the thorny issue about compliance. Is it an issue? The answer is it certainly is. Now, to get around the failure of patients to continue on their tyrosine kinase inhibitors, a number of investigators, including Javier Mahon in Bordeaux, began to look at plasma levels of the drug when patients came to the clinic. However, they did find that some patients who had discontinued the tyrosine kinase inhibitor doubled the dose for a few days before coming to the clinic and thereby maintained a measurable therapeutic plasma level. So that is clearly not the complete answer. And that brings me on to the major issue of whether patients with CML should be treated in a specialized clinic or by individual hematologists or, in certain countries, oncologists. And I firmly believe the answer is that these patients should be treated in a specialized clinic. First of all, the doctors and other healthcare workers get used to dealing with these patients and to interpretation of laboratory results. Secondly, the healthcare workers can develop a very close contact and association with the laboratory carrying out transcript measurements. And this is important, as I said before, in the follow-up of patients being treated. Also, the psychologists may be involved to try and convince patients that it's extremely important to keep taking their tablets. One of the uh, difficulties patients have with tyrosine kinase inhibitors may be the expense. Now in many patients, including in many countries, I should say, including where I live, the cost of tyrosine kinase inhibitors is undertaken by the state, but that is not always true. And these drugs may cost in excess of 30,000 euros per annum, which may be very difficult for patients to sustain. Happily, there are now a number of generic variations, or versions, I should say, of tyrosine kinase inhibitors available in many countries, which significantly reduces the cost and makes the drug available to virtually everybody with CML. I should also say that the number of patients with chronic phase CML is steadily increasing all over the world because of the use of tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Although the incidence of disease is not changing, the prevalence certainly is, and we're accumulating large numbers of patients, which in itself causes a, a, a problem with cost and supply of the drugs. Now, as I said, the first tyrosine kinase inhibitor To be developed, STI 571 or DLEVEC has now been followed by second and third generation TKIs. Uh, Are these drugs better? Well, they're more expensive. They produce a deeper molecular response more rapidly than DLEVEC, but as yet, they do not seem to have any advantage over DLEVEC in prolonging patients' lives who have chronic phase. CML. They also um, have an increased level of toxicity, which may mean having to stop these agents at a fairly early stage in disease. Now, the question which is on everybody's mind is, do TKIs or tyrosine kinase inhibitors have to be kept or maintained for the rest of the patient's life? I have to say this is a highly controversial issue. Certainly, there are patients who have developed a deep molecular response for a period of a number of years in whom it seems safe to discontinue the tyrosine kinase inhibitor. This probably should be done in, in, within the context of a clinical trial. However, the good news is that even though about half the patients who discontinue med- medication will relapse, they will respond a second time, to tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So that obviously is good news. Now, with the advent of tyrosine kinase inhibitors, some people also ask the question, is allogeneic transplantation ever indicated? And the answer is yes, but rarely. For patients with accelerated phase disease or blast crisis, Allogeneic HCT is the only treatment which may offer them any chance of long-term survival. I should also say that allogeneic HCT for CML is quite different to AML, for example, because you may see relapses following transplant ten or even fifteen years later in CML patients, but in patients with AML, relapses usually occur within the first couple of years. So I hope I've made it clear that, although there have been huge advantages since the advent of tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and in a recent conversation last week, in fact, with Brian Drucker, I'm happy to report that he still uses CleveC at 600 milligrams a day for patients with chronic phase CML. So that drug, 20 years later, is still in use, and that in our own experience, looking back for 20 years, over 50% of the patients are still alive and well and free of disease. So the landscape has changed, although there are many questions and answers still to be looked at. I'm going to just tell you briefly about a patient of mine. um, This was a 40-year-old man who was referred to us uh, w- uh, with the diagnosis of CML and he was referred for consideration for allogeneic HCT. He was in chronic phase and he had a HLA compatible sibling donor. His only complaint was fatigue and a feeling of fullness in his abdomen after eating and this was in fact due to an enlarged spleen. The spleen was enlarged three centimetres below the left costular margin And following detailed counselling, he was offered allogeneic HCT from his sibling brother, and this was in 1993. He received four myeloblade of conditioning and 1.8 by 10 to the 8 kilogram of nucleated cells from his brother, and he was given standard short methotrexate and cyclosporine as graft-versus-host disease prophylaxis. About four weeks following transplant, he developed CMV cytomegalic virus pneumonitis and responded to the drug foscarnate and high-dose IVIG. I should say that although foscarnate is still a valuable treatment, uh, there is no clear evidence that the use of high-dose IVIG makes any difference in the treatment of CMV pneumonitis. And with the advent of screening of donors and recipients for CMV, this is uh, not as big an issue as it used to be. Incidentally, that patient was the first patient diagnosed in Ireland following transplant with CMV pneumonitis. He did not develop graft-versus-host disease. He remained very well until 2003, when a rising white cell count and rising transcripts showed that he had relapsed. So the inclination would be to either give him donor lymphocyte infusion from his original donor or consider a second allo-HCT. The clinical situation was complicated by the fact that his brother, who was his only HLA-compatible sibling, had died in 2001 of myocardial infarct. So that really, the use of DLI or a second transplant was not an issue. I decided to give him imatinib, 600 milligrams a day, and after three months, happily, he had a complete response. He was a complete donor chimera by PCR of uh, short tandem repeats carried out in our laboratory. As far as I know, he was either the first or one of the very earliest patients to be given imatinib following relapse, after an allogeneic HCT. He remained well with very low levels of transcript, less than 10 to the minus 4. However, he did have chronic diarrhea over many years, which was attributed to imatinib. He was unhappy to remain on this drug, so he was changed to dasatinib in 2010, but discontinued this after a number of years, again, because of toxicity. At the moment, he has been on no treatment for a period of almost four years and remains very well with normal blood counts. And his transcript level, again, is very low at less than 10 to the minus 4 by quantitative PCR. And it is now 28 years since his allogeneic HCT for chronic phase CML. If I may, I could just introduce a Little anecdote here to say that this man is an extremely competent and good amateur fisherman. And he used to catch a wild salmon on the River Shannon every year and bring it to me in Dublin until I retired about 10 years ago. So I had a, I think might say, a vested interest in keeping him alive for as long as possible as I really, I and my family always enjoyed eating that salmon. So a happy end to an interesting story. Thank you. That was Professor Sean McCann
0: for Episode 7 of EHA Unplugged. For other topics, we highly recommend the rest of this podcast series. For now, thank you for listening. And hey, if you are passionate about hematology yourself, why not contact us and start your own podcast episode? You can reach us via education at ehaweb.org. Goodbye.